Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, where I just watched a new documentary all about the glass sponge reef that has been found out in BC and the researchers who are working so hard to not only learn more about it, but also to conserve it. This is a reef and a type of reef that was thought to have been extinct for 40 million years. And it was found in the late 20th century. And there are researchers who are trying to discover more about it, how it lives, how it survives, and the benefits that it provides. It's believed that the reef filters up to 17 billion liters of water a day so it's very important to the ecosystem out there in british columbia and yet it's something that not a lot of people know about and that is where the documentary moonless oasis comes from it profiles the citizen researchers who are out there diving down to learn more about the reef and working to conserve it. It's a remarkable film. The challenges associated with diving to the depths of the reef, it's about 200 feet below the surface of the water, much deeper than a typical dive. So a lot of challenges associated with that. And the film very powerfully profiles the efforts that these researchers are going to, to ensure the survival of the reef and i was lucky enough to talk to the filmmakers of moonless oasis and nate slacko and bryce zimmerman from vancouver guys how you doing today very well it's great thank you very much for joining me today as i said off the intro of course the film moonless oasis and uh just to get into this this is a topic that obviously as a historian based in central canada not something that I'm super familiar with, but I did have the chance to watch it last night. And a lot of the the focus of the film is about citizen researchers, the people who have day jobs and, and do this because of their interest and their passion for it. So I'm curious to know how you guys came to this particular story and to these people. It, it was a very random uh, happening. I was talking to a person who worked at my apartment building and he was mentioning that he was a scuba diver and he just happened to be Hamish's friend. So I got interested when he told me about Hamish and his glass sponge work. And then I had a very long phone call with Hamish the next day. And that's kind of where he broke down to me everything that's happening with him and his team. So let's establish too what the glass sponge, re- what that is. And why that is so important to people like Hamish, who you you mentioned, like, why is that so important and what does it do and and why does it deserve all this attention that these folks are putting on it? It's fascinating in part because it was quite literally thought to be extinct for the past 40 million years. And uh, there was a researcher in Germany whose name I can't recall right now, who was studying the prehistoric remains of it. There's lots of places in Europe. Uh, where hills and mountains are made of the remains of glass sponge reefs from the Jurassic period, I believe. 
Um, and so he was studying that. And then in the eighties, when it was discovered here, it was quite literally like finding a dinosaur. Like if you're studying dinosaur bones and all of a sudden someone's like, Hey, I have a living one over here. You're going to kind of freak out. So part of that is that they've been studied for a long time as contributing to, I think like the geology of regions. And then all of a sudden to find them alive can give a huge insight into that study, as well as the fact that in this unique environment, like they are a massive uh, help in terms of filter filtering the water of house sound. Um, they can do 17 billion liters of seawater a day. It's estimated, which for the entire area of house sound, they probably turn over three times a year. So incredibly efficient, very beneficial filter feeders, but we really don't know very much about how they function or how they operate or kind of any of their biology. So it's, it's, uh, a fascinating thing to study because of that too. Like we just don't know that much about them. And so we have to protect them obviously so that we can continue to see what they do. Well, it's remarkable to me though, that they can be so important and they're there and have sound and yet people thought they were extinct. So how, how did they find them and discover that they were there? Um, I mean, the, there were, they were discovered, I think, in some deep site surveys in Hecate and Georgia Strait in the 80s. But then in the 90s, basically, um, as you see at the top of the film, is Glenn Dennison. And he's kind of showcasing how he found them, which is he, he, uh, he's a pretty smart guy. And he built a homemade drop camera and mapping system out of some PVC pipe. And he was trying to map the bottom of House Sound so that he could write a book about diving in House Sound. And he just started mapping it. And I think through kind of his connections in that world, talked to Dr. Jeff Marlier, who was talking about glass sponge reefs in Georgia Strait. And Glenn was basically like, oh, we have those in House Sound too. I've seen those. And I guess like it kind of kickstarted this whole thing because no one had any idea that they existed. And now they've identified, I think, 17 sites in House Sound. And it's by far and above like the healthiest sponge in the region, which is the only place in the world that it exists in the first place. And for you guys as filmmakers, what does that present? So you, you get the word of mouth that this is found and that people are doing research on it. Does it immediately strike you as something that, yes, this is we, we have to put this on film. This is going to make for a good documentary. Is there an immediate light bulb moment for you? I think so. I think when you initially see any of the existing footage or images of these sites, it just looks so alien-like that... For me and Bryce, uh, yeah, we just had to know more. And generally, that's a pretty good sign uh, that the story is interesting. Does this feed into other work that you've done? Have, have you done a lot of environmental documentaries or anything particularly related to ocean life? Uh, I think both Bryce and I have worked on uh, shorter projects of similar nature, but like underwater filming was not something we had very much knowledge on and <laughs> it proved to be much more difficult than we even ever anticipated. Uh, so yeah, we were both pretty green coming into it on that level, but it was, you know, maybe, maybe that's what it needed. Right. <laughs> so, all right. Well, let's talk about some of those challenges because we do see it in the film. I think the first scene even is we see people planning a dive and talking about, some of the things that, again, Central Canadian, I've been on a boat like three times. Um, you know, I, I'm not, no, no one accused me of being, you know, the, the boatsman or, or anyone who's, you know, drawn necessarily to the oceans. So all those things about, you know, wind and tides uh, and, and all those things that go into a dive that I certainly would have never thought of. 
I, I was glad that the movie sort of teed it up that way. But for you guys, in terms of the filming of it, what unique challenges does filming on the water and, of course, in the water present compared to what you might be used to as a documentary filmmaker? Um, I think like the the first difficulty and, and we kind of came to early on was how to film on boats. So much of this happens on boats that it was uh, we had to make a conscious decision about how we wanted to do that. And uh, based on a previous project I shot about sailing, we kind of I had the idea to just basically put the camera on a tripod and really lock it off. And the first day we went out, it was incredibly rough and like the like the boats rocking around and everything, but the footage works really well and the background moves a lot, but the people don't. And I think it allows you to sort of be in that space without um, getting seasick. If the camera was moving and the boat was moving and the people are moving, it might've been too much. And so that was kind of the first thing. And, and once we had that down, it was a, you know, still a challenge to kind of be in those spaces, putting a tripod down, trying to make room. And it was a learning process for sure from that point. Um, and then the underwater stuff, like we knew it was going to be hard and we'd been warned about how hard it was. Um, but it was just the technical equipment. We had one, our first dive we got really excited about. We had this intense, deep housing for like a high-end cinema camera. And we put it in the water and the camera just shut off. And that kind of like, was it for that day. You know, that's a few thousand dollars down the toilet. Um, and we had to kind of rethink things. And eventually we uh, found one of the people in the dive community, Adam Taylor, who had a housing that worked well for a camera that we thought would work well. And we were able to test that and try it out. And that worked super well. And then we ran into the issues of weather and timing and visibility and all these other things. So in the end, we had a plan for three dives that we were going to get footage on. And that was hopefully enough footage for the film. But we actually only got like really useful footage on the sixth and the seventh dives, which is what you see at the end of the film. So there was a lot of disappointment and stress and sort of uh, fear that we wouldn't get that. But in the end, like we kind of had to keep doing it. There was no real option for failure because we wouldn't have had a movie if we didn't get that. Right. Yeah. And it kind of fits into the struggle that the researchers themselves are going through that you see a little bit in the film as well, right? This is challenging work. This isn't just if anyone's curious and thinking, well, you know, I go dive in. This isn't like a recreational dive that, you know, you can go and you would do scuba diving on vacation. This is a lot more dangerous because of the depth of the reef, right? Yeah, just everything gets more complicated and dangerous the deeper you go. And they're much more advanced than air gas divers as well. They're using uh, a mixture of different gases, including helium, to be able to breathe at, you know, 200 plus feet below the surface. So, yeah, it's incredibly complex and, like, you see it in the movie, you said, uh, they're constantly checking and double checking all their gear, making sure all the redundancies, right redundancies are in place, as well as they have uh, a team of safety divers who are volunteering to make sure that each diver is being taken care of and has what they need to do. So given the complicated nature of the dive itself, is there any... Was there any pushback of putting cameras on the, the people or, or getting in the way of what they needed to do, not only from a research perspective, but also just from the safety angle of it? Was there any or what were those discussions like to ensure that the cameras that you were using to get your footage 
wasn't going to compromise what they were trying to do, both in terms of safety and the research? Uh, well, we kind of had a talk with Hamish and Vanessa before shooting, and they had mentioned they'd, they'd worked with filmers before, and uh, we kind of just had a talk about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. We tried to stay out of their way as much as possible because obviously their safety is number one. So there were there were times where we had to sacrifice the shot to make sure they're safe and all that. But uh, yeah, I think after the first day of being out on the water with them, we kind of got a feel for how each of us work together. And it wasn't much of a problem beyond that. And what about lighting? Of course, the title is Moonless Oasis and you're that far down. How, how do you get the light necessary to make it work on screen? So one of the reasons we kind of, you know, or part of the reason we were excited about getting these cameras down there is when we first met Hamish, um, he showed us some of his GoPro videos because they usually do film with GoPros uh, down there because they're kind of, I guess, goal originally is also just to document to show people this too. Um, but through that, he'd kind of developed with his team a very I don't know, comprehensive way to light the entire sponge. So normally one person has a camera and lights on their camera and you only get that point of view of the lights. But he had kind of worked out that you need a person beside the sponge for scale who also has a light to show more detail. There's some lights on the camera to kind of add a little bit of fill. And then he has uh, another diver floating up above both of them with a bar that has two really powerful lights on it. And so he kind of developed that system on his own, independent of us. And we came in and kind of just worked with him and tweaked it a little bit and made sure that it would work with the kind of footage we wanted to get. Um, and then uh, I did a little seminar for him and, and the team on kind of cinematography and lighting from the more film perspective. And with the combination of that, uh, he just took that knowledge and ran with it and, and was able to direct the team underwater. And, and we basically just put a camera in his hands and let him go. Given the challenges associated not only with the production, but the diving itself, how would you guys characterize this film? Because as I was watching it, I kept going back and forth. Is this a story about nature and the reef itself and what's going on there? Or is this a human story about people wanting to know more, wanting to protect the, the reef itself? and the challenges associated with doing that? Or is it, is it a mix of both? Like, like, how would you frame the story? I would say it's primarily a human story. We're trying to tell the story of why these people are so passionate about saving these sponge. Uh, the sponge themselves are super interesting and beautiful to look at, but I think what really will hopefully resonate with people is that passion and perseverance that the team uh, has for doing the work they do. And where does that passion come from for, for these folks? I mean, you obviously spent a lot of time with them. We talked about how dangerous this can be. So where, why do they feel it's so important to go down, look at this and understand it in the way that they are so driven to do? Yeah, I think, I think that probably just comes from diving, you know? A lot of them talk about the moment they first come down on these sites. And I think it's probably one of those things like while our footage is, in my opinion, like some of the best footage of these sites, I don't think anything will truly compare to being in that place and seeing it for the first time in real life. The offshoot of that, of course, is that the public 
who is going to watch the documentary only have what footage you got from it and, and are not going to be going down there. So for anyone who's coming to it, who won't have that same eureka moment as the divers, what do you, what do you expect the audience to take out of seeing this on screen the way that it's been captured in the film? Well, I think it's the thing we were distinctly aware that if we tried to make a nature film, I don't think we could have pulled it off. Right. Because it was so difficult to get this footage in the first place, we can't just focus on the animal itself. So um, we kind of early on realized that the story we really wanted to tell was just about how much these people care about the sponge. And so that's kind of your entry point, right? Seeing someone who cares so much about the sponge kind of gives you a better idea of how important they are than just telling people that they're important. So we really wanted to showcase that. And I think that with their love and care for it, it's just, I mean, from what I understand, it's you start diving because you like diving and then you like seeing what's down there and then it becomes this exploration and you get really more and more interested in what's down there and the marine biology and it kind of just goes on and on. And so I think since all these divers have been diving for so long, clearly they love diving so much and part of loving diving so much I think is seeing these places but also protecting these places and becoming deeply aware of how important they are because you get to spend time in them. And with the, the reefs in the film, you know, there's only been about 10 people who've seen Lost Reef in real life with their own eyes. And that may be as many as ever do see it with their own eyes. So it, it I mean, there's an element of exploration and novelty, and obviously it's exciting for them. But also I think the fact that they get to bring attention to this um, gives it a lot more meaning than just diving. So let's get to the bringing attention side to it, because this is one of these things that it's extraordinarily difficult to get people to care about things, right? You, especially things that don't directly affect them in the immediate moment. So what sort of effort are these folks doing and, and does the film contribute to their efforts to get people to care about the reef and about its preservation for the long term? Yeah, I, I think like for myself, not being a diver and like being intrigued uh, by the sponge sites, like I think that goes to show that, you know, people who aren't, who, who don't see it directly can care. I think, yeah, the, a big part of the process is, is, you know, these divers and the people from the Marine Life Sanctuary Society and the Underwater Council have put together the information to get it protected by the government. But I think that it, like any of these instances, you kind of need that public buy-in to have an idea of like a, a public park or a public site that you want to actually protect. It needs people to, to know about it so that they can care about it. And so I think while a lot of great efforts are being made locally to protect them, I think that for us, we wanted to make sure the public is aware so that there's more buy-in and more pride. And I think, you know, living in Vancouver, we know that, it's a pretty special region in terms of its uh, ecology and this just adds to it. And I think another point of pride that when people come visit, you can be like, Hey, guess what? Under there is like the only place in the world that glass sponge reefs exist. And I think that is really helpful. And is, is seeing it part of that? Because one of these things that, that I was thinking about during the film, especially in one part where they're they're during the first dive that you see in the film I was thinking, is it worth it to go see it for these folks as opposed to whatever geomapping you can do from the water, from the surface and push for protection that way, 
right? What what is the added element of seeing it? And for you guys, as the filmmakers who obviously got to see the footage that they were getting and be around them as they were going down and seeing them themselves, what is that initial or the added benefit of seeing it in person and then sharing the images with the public compared to just talking about it? I think that, uh, I mean, a big part of it is the fact that everyone who's been down there has a pretty awe-inspiring way of talking about it, you know, not to hit on the space analogy too much, but like, it is like people who've been to space or to the moon, right? We don't, we're not going to get to do that, but you want someone to go out there and to describe it to you and to, so that you can feel it that way. I think that using remote operated vehicles or submersibles that are like drones, they don't have that human perspective. And so it makes it really difficult for people to put themselves in that space. And I think partially that's the reason we wanted to get footage that was just so cinematic and compelling was because I think that really helps people feel what it's like to be down there and that this exists on an emotional level, because I think that's where the connection will be is that if you think that this is like incredible and beautiful, you're more likely to, you know, fall in love with it than if you think that it's just like factually beneficial that it filters water. And for the folks who are doing the work, the folks who are out there diving, in your dealings with them, were they conscious of that side of it, of having you guys on board to help not only tell the story, but then to show the images that they were collecting? You know, how conscious were they of trying to get the to basically help you guys out to get the film to a place where it would attract a, a large audience and people would be compelled by the images themselves? Yeah, I, I think we tried not to impose too much, but they definitely, uh, yeah, they, they called every dive that we were on the boat a working dive. Uh, and it definitely like added, I'm sure it added stress to them. Uh, in general. So yeah, I think, I think they, they were determined to, you know, get us the footage we need for this. Cause I think they saw the importance in the film, bringing awareness uh, to the work they're doing as well as the class fun trees. And then as, as the director and cinematographer of this, how do you ensure that the realness of it comes across? You know, you talk about it being working dives and it's shot in that verite style where it's, it, you know, there's no, overarching voice narrator that takes you through it. it. It's shot in that very real style. So how do you ensure, how did you guys ensure that these people who are used to maybe not having cameras on them all the time, and obviously they're not actors, how do you make sure, or what was put in place to ensure that they were working and it came across as a very genuine experience? Because it does when you're, when you're watching it, it feels like you are eavesdropping on these folks working. So how do, how did you guys set it up so that that was the case? Um, I think largely it was, you know, kind of being around them all the time and being embedded in those situations. Um, that, that was a big part of it. I think it took a while. We definitely have some stuff at the beginning where it was less, you know, good in that way. People are a little more conscious. You can kind of notice they're looking at the camera, but over time people just kind of ignore you. And especially with the, with the bigger dives, um, they really, you know, they got really used to us being there, but they're also working. They're also trying to get their gear together. They're focused on something. And that's kind of the best case scenario is that they end up just focusing on what they're doing. And so they kind of ignore you because they're too busy to pay attention. And so that was a big, a big part of it. 
um, along with just sort of, you know, being clear up front about what we're trying to do and, and what we're trying to capture in the style. And I think that to their credit, I don't think that any of them really had any idea what it was going to be like while we were filming it, but they trusted us enough to, to let us just be there the whole time. And we had really great partners and everyone to inform us what was going on or any events or things that would come up. And so, um, in the end it was, it was, a uh, part planning and part serendipity. And how much of the storytelling is done in editing with something like this? Because, I mean, I can't imagine, I'm not a scientist, but as a historian, the research side of what we do, I mean, it's interesting to us, but I can't imagine that a documentary crew would ever want to watch a historian work. And I would imagine a lot of scientific work is the same. So how do you craft something when you're profiling people doing research to make it an appealing narrative for an audience? Yeah, that's actually something we struggled with because I think uh, this this you know this story could be told in multiple different ways, uh, and there there are a lot of complicated things they're talking about, uh, and we we definitely had to kind of refocus the edit to be less about the technicalities of it and more focused on why they're doing it. Uh, you know, we do we do include some of the equipment checks because we think that's a reoccurring thing that is important but we really want to focus the edit more on the people and like the why yeah as you mentioned earlier it really does does come across as that human story then as opposed to a nature documentary that we are really following these folks as they're working and as they're putting together their research and do you feel as though having spent time with them that the film it is reflective of at least what I got out of it was some sense of optimism that they have about the future of the reef and about its long-term viability in a world where conservation is m more of a priority than it used to be, but obviously not a top priority for governments around the world. I think that the interesting part with that is just seeing, you know, like we kind of parachuted into this world that exists very fully formed of scientists and the divers and this community of people doing this work. They all know each other. They all talk, obviously like researchers, wish they had more money, but they don't. So these people volunteering their time and resources is super beneficial. Uh, most of the scientific divers can't even dive to these sites. So they kind of work in concert. I don't think they would be doing it if they did, they weren't optimistic as well. You know, I think it can be like, you know, the world can be a depressing place if you're listening to the news and stuff, but they obviously see the merit of what they're doing. And I feel like they're hopeful uh, just in the fact that they're finding new sites and working to protect them and doing all this work that, you know, no one asked them to do. They They're doing it on their own time. And they've had success as well in the past, I think is a, is a key part of that too. You know, not all the sites are protected, but some of them are, and that's directly related to the work they've done. So I think they have enough of a track record that they feel like they can continue to do that. So I think the work they do contributes to like the DFO protecting these sites and they know that. So it obviously buoys them and makes them happy to continue to do it. You mentioned that you guys were kind of dropping in and they all know each other. There's this community of scientists and divers who, who do this sort of work. 
do you feel that gave you an advantage not being from that community that you didn't know them as well going into it and it allowed you to have a almost layperson's approach to what is very highly technical both on the science side and the dive side itself does that allow you to almost be a surrogate for your audience at that point where you don't know as much obviously as the people you're profiling i think 100 percent. that's it i think uh us us coming from you know a non-diver background we would question uh there's a lot of things that they'll just say and there will be no explanation about it but we had to constantly remind them to like kind of talk in a more uh general sense N not only for the film but so we could understand what was happening and even towards the end of the film, Bryce and I picked up some of the technical dive lingo. So uh, I think it, I think it help, was helpful just to be able to look at things uh, from a more basic sense and figure out how to make it compelling to people who aren't from that world. Yeah, we, we pretty, uh, like we clearly knew, I think from the beginning when we were making this film that we were making this for people who weren't part of that world. And that was a bit of a driving force in terms of our decision making because we didn't want people to feel alienated you know did we will the divers think it's perfect probably not because we probably messed up some stuff or said used the wrong things on the diving side of things but in the end i don't think that's the important part it's more about the activities that they're doing so for anyone who's coming to this documentary and looking forward to seeing what is presented here what would you prep an audience for like what would you say if if it was possible for us to have a, an actual release and it's in a theater somewhere and people are coming to see it uh, as a as a premiere what would you say to an audience to prep them for it as they prepare to watch it i think i think probably we wouldn't want to say too much i think part of the the design of the film is to let people learn about this world and you know, ask questions and then have answers and kind of just see how it is. We really want people to experience the film in a way that sort of they can work with it and ask questions and learn things as opposed to being told what to think. So I'd probably, probably wouldn't say too much in advance of it, to be honest. I'd probably just let people watch it and then hopefully afterwards they'd have lots of questions. And then do you think that for you guys, again, you mentioned that, again, not experts in the, in the field, yeah, you live in Vancouver, so you're it's, it's local to you. Do you think that this is going to resonate with a national audience and get people? You know, I live in Ottawa. We have a lot of federal government people here. I know folks who work for the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Do you think that this is going to resonate with audiences who are not local to the reef itself and will potentially get more folks on board? with conservation efforts and put maybe some pressure on the department to provide greater protections to the reef. Yeah, for sure. I think like one of the things we wanted to do uh, from the get go on this film was to like, while it is a very unique and local story, I think like doesn't matter where you're from. There's always that some something special in your backyard and it probably needs some protection. And I think by showing these what these uh, citizen scientists uh, are doing and are capable of doing, it uh, will hopefully leave you feeling less futile about uh, what's happening in your world.
yeah, trying to inspire people to make a change around them. And I think that's what we're hoping resonates is not so much like it's just in BC, but just that if you put your mind to it, you can make a difference, right? We often, we don't often see the positive side of protections or the effort that people are making for these things. So I think it's good to have that win, but also show people that, you know, they've also been doing this for seven years. You know, they've also like Glenn started mapping it in the nineties. It's a slow process, but it does have results. Yeah. And, and I, I agree that uh, definitely a reason why people should go and watch it. So again, the title is Moonless Oasis. It is available on CBC Gem. And guys, if anybody wanted to get more info on the film or on your work, where can they go? Where can they find that kind of stuff? Uh, we've got a website, moonlessoasis.com and also uh, Moonless Oasis on most social networks. Yeah. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all, the, all those good ones. Awesome. Well, uh, definitely everybody check it out. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. So there you have it. My discussion with Nate Slacko and Bryce Zimmerman. Again, Moonless Oasis. You can find it on CBC Gem. And I would encourage you to check it out. There's this old saying that I've heard that if everything on land died, everything in the water would be fine. But if everything in the water died, Everything on land would also die. You know, we're super dependent on the water and the things that live in the water for our survival on land. And it's important that we conserve these natural environments that are so central to the ecosystems in water systems because we are dependent on them. So definitely check out Moonless Oasis and the work that this particular team of researchers is putting in to the glass sponge reef. So that'll do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcasts on Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, all the places. Do the likes, the ratings, comment about the show. Really helps beat all those algorithms and helps other people find the show. And of course, head on over to activehistory.ca. And that's also where you can find all of our past episodes, all 168 of them. Of course, if you want to influence what we have on the show, let me know what you want to hear. Historyslam at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. So we'll be back with you again next week. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.